I have this old pitcher, bent and tattered around the edges, that sits atop my dresser next to my pickle jar full of coins. The photo was taken a few weeks after my old man moved out for good. Not that there's anything particularly auspicious about the occasion of that photograph, but it's maybe one of a half dozen I have from my childhood. That's me, little Mike Munoz, standing in the middle. A sad-eyed ferret of a kid, skinny and bewildered, slight olive complexion, dark rings under my eyes. Greasy bangs plastered to my forehead, faded tough-skinned jeans riding halfway up my shins. On my back, a dirty brown coat with a fake fur collar. Not exactly the kids from the Sears catalog, but a kid all the same. Eight years old, looking for a little security and a little self-confidence. Any confidence, really. Just a third grader, bottom lift chafed from obsessive licking, little fingernails bitten to the quick, aching for a good time. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, February 26, 2019, and that means it's, of course, time to think again about Treefort, which may not be, quote, the happiest place on earth, but it's certainly not an empty parking lot in Bremerton either. Today, for 42 minutes, we will reconnect with Jonathan Evison to discuss the great American landscaping novel, Lawn Boy, published this past spring by Algonquin Books. In his funny, angry, touching, an ultimately deeply inspiring novel, best-selling author Jonathan Evison takes the reader into the heart and mind of a young man on a journey to discover himself, a search to find the secret to achieving the American dream of happiness and prosperity. That's the birthright for all Americans, isn't it? If so, then what is Mike Munoz's problem? Though he tries time and again to get his foot on the first rung of the ladder to success, he can't seem to get a break, but then things start to change for Mike, and after a raucous, jarring, and challenging trip, he finds he can finally see the future and his place in it. And it's really looking good. Lawn Boy is an important, entertaining, and completely winning novel about social class distinctions and overcoming cultural discrimination, and about standing up for oneself. Jonathan Evison is the author of four previous novels, including All About Lulu, West of Here, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, and This Is Your Life, Harry Chance. We've spoken with him twice on this show, and we'll link to those episodes, 258 and 303. More information about him and his work can be found at his website, jonathanevison.net. It really is a pleasure to be welcoming Jonathan back to talk about such timely and appropriate subjects. How are you doing today, Jonathan? Good. Thanks for having me back, Douglas. You bet. I'm excited about Treefort, man. It is that is the most magical place on earth for me. <laughs> it this is for me too. This will be my third year in a row. Yeah. I've managed to insinuate myself on the uh, festival and find ways to continue to come. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, uh, let's just dig into Treefort. So, uh, looking back, you know, what memories, what fond memories of Last year's tree fort, do you uh, take with you? Oh God, uh, what was that? Is it the Cora? What, what what's the name of the old? Uh, saw Twin Peaks and some bands. What's that great venue? It's like the old Elks Hall. I think yeah. it's the Cora Hall. Or, the El Cora oh man, Shrine. sitting downstairs. Yeah. With me and 
me and Stuart O'Nan and Willie Blotton and, and Trudy O'Nan and, and Sam and, and Christian and all just sitting down there drinking beer and, and just debating, 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 debating greatest front men and rock and roll, debating books, just, just good times, hanging out at the 10th Street down under there. Most of them involve drinking, I'll, I'll admit it, but it, it's just such a great little town and you can really, I don't know, you just feel the, you just feel the excitement there. It's a perfect little size town for a festival like that. I prefer it to Bumbershoot or some of the bigger festivals I do. Well, so you grew up in the Seattle area in the 80s, is that right? 70s, 80s? Yeah. Was Seattle yeah, I mean, in the 80s kind of like where Boise is now? Or was it always a little bigger because of... It was much bigger, but I mean, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it was it was kind of run down and... Uh, I, I think Seattle in the early '80s is more like Cleveland than than Boise. Uh, you know, I mean, I just remember skating around the waterfront under the viaducts and stuff. Now it's just like you know, high-end furniture stores and things like that. But then it was just abandoned warehouses and loading docks, and it looked more like you know, I mean, it looked more like a dirty old city. You know, I mean, First Avenue was pool halls and strip joints, and you know. Uh, cigar stores, smoke shops, that kind of thing. And now it's just like, you know, steel and glass, boutique hotels. It's just, you know, like everywhere else, just kind of gentrified. Well, something we've never spoken about is, and I'm not I'm not sure about this part of your biography, but you played in bands in the 80s, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I started in, started in uh, 1982 when I was like 13 years old. I actually... First, I had a fanzine called Simplex One that I would um, I would do show reviews and record reviews and band interviews and stuff like that, and and I would write it all myself. And I had you know I had a couple friends that would contribute, and then I would I would um, copy it at the library, you know, and I'd make about only about I don't know maybe a hundred hundred and twenty copies, and then I would uh, distribute them at like Time Travelers, Tower Records, Urban Renewal, like the punk record stores and the comic stores. Mm-hmm. And that thing would get, I mean, within months, that thing would, I'd get letters from Norway. I mean, we're talking 120 copies. I'm sure it got pirated many times along the way, but I'd get letters from Norway and Alaska, all over the world. And I don't know, I think that's so cool, given the times we live in now, where, you know, you can globally connect, uh, you know, instantaneously. And I started a band called March of Crimes, and um, uh, with a band from who later went on to Soundgarden and Stoney from Pearl Jam was in the band for a while to like kick them out. Um, you know, we gigged around Seattle a little, toured the West Coast and stuff like that. I never really had a lot of musical talent. I had a, I had a yen for booking the band. I was a kind of kind of an energetic young front man, but like you know, I didn't, I you know, I didn't have any musical talent really. I didn't play an instrument. I just screamed as good as the next guy. Wrote some, you know, I guess sort of okay lyrics for a 14 year old so then when you're when you're sitting in the in the basement of the el Corey shrine debating you know who 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 are your best front mans in rock and roll i don't know we were so drunk i remember <laughs> i was just saying even though I, i'm not even going to say who my favorites are or anything like that but i was just i, I was putting jim jim morrison's uh, hat in the ring and you know ironically Stuart was uh do it because I'm a, I'm a big Stooges fan you know I've been I saw Iggy Pop when I was 15 years old but uh he, Stewart was saying Iggy was the and I just I couldn't give it to him I, it's got to be somebody with a little more mainstream reach I think I think I was seeing Jim Morrison huh. whatever you think of the guy he was a charismatic front man yeah yeah 
And you know, Larry, 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 and this was before uh, the, the Bohemian Rhapsody came out. Larry was putting Freddie Mercury's hat in the ring, I believe. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like we're starting. We're of the age where a lot of the these icons are starting to pass, and it's it's kind of sad. I mean, so Prince, boy, that was a charismatic guy. As far as I mean, he he was not really. A, I mean, he started as kind of a band, but he was always the attraction there. How old a guitar player? Never, I was never a huge fan of the compositions. Hmm. I got Sign of the Times and, and Purple Rain and probably three Prince albums, but I, I just never loved that. I never, I never loved the compositions and the productions. But man, that guy could play guitar. Yeah, one of the best. Well, uh, since we're kind of on the subject of Seattle, let's talk about the setting of uh, this new book. Well, it's newish. It came out last year. So Long Boy kind of takes place in and around the Bainbridge Island area, the Suquamish Indian Reservation. That's kind of where you work right now, isn't it? Or in yeah, well, I'm my kids go to school here on the island, and I'm here three days a week. We go back and forth between the Olympic Peninsula and here. Like, I ride out in uh, between Swim and Fort Angeles up in the hills. In fact, I got snowed in there by myself for 12 days this month which was great. I missed my family, but good God, I piled up some pages, man. I think I would have gone crazy if it weren't for the work, though. I mean, I didn't see a soul for 12 days. Luckily, I had plenty of food and beer, and I just wrote, 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 you know? So I didn't get lonely because I had all these characters. Well, the the snow is is happening all over the West, but I think it's particularly interesting. Like, Seattle doesn't generally get snow, or if it does, it, it's, you know, a dusting at night, and then it was gone. But... You guys have gotten some accumulation in the area, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I got three feet at my place and swim. I mean, I literally couldn't get out of my driveway for almost two weeks. Um, the island was about, I don't know, I think they got about a foot here, but, like, we lost our canopy, crushed the, you know, kind of crushed part of the car. I got some trees down, but I left my chainsaw at the other place. I mean, we've got some damage. I mean, it was kind of a big deal. You know, this area is just not equipped for snow. People don't know what to do. The roads are awful. You know, we don't have a lot of plows. People don't even know how to shovel their driveways and stuff. And they're, they're not used to it, you know. So it's just like, you know, calamitous. Well, the news kind of made it out to be like a snowpocalypse. But was it... Yeah, well, so did the people. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, on the road I live in in Squim, I, I, you know, probably three times a day I was helping shovel, shovel some neighbor's four by out of a ditch or, you know. So then, uh, as you're trapped in your cabin, did you feel like Jack Torrance there, stuck in the the overlook? I did not, because, you know, I never stopped due to, I, it was like taking vacation. I think it was probably one of the most productive spans of work I've ever experienced, at least since I've had kids, you know, the past 10 years. I remember, used, I used to be able to go 12, 16 hours at a time, just, you know, writing madly. Um, but with three kids, it's become a little harder, which is one of the reasons I go out there to write so I can get these big, um, you know, swabs of time. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I just took advantage of the time. I, I mean, I, I think, I, you know, like I said, I think I piled up like 70 pages of the novel I'm working on. It, it was glorious. But you're I mean, usually, was, you're like a, a couple novels ahead. So there's one kind of like in the works going through the, the pipes to get published. And then you're working on the one that hopefully is done by the time the other one's coming out. Is that still exactly? Case? Yeah. Like I just turned one in about um, three months ago, which will publish 2020. 
hopefully not at election time. Um, and then I started this other, it's a monster. It's probably like an 800 page book. So that's the one I was working on now. I'm, I'm maybe 150 pages into that one. Yeah, I like to stay ahead because, you know, it keeps everybody, it keeps pressure off me. Hey, I got to keep the lights on. But also, you know, um, anytime you have any kind of success with your writing, everybody wants to kind of tell you what to do a little bit. You get a yeah. little, a little more, more voices telling you, well, that's work. Let's try to do it. What, what if you do a little something like this or that? And this way, it's like it's a foregone conclusion. I've already written the book. You can take it or leave it. So is the one that you turned in, uh, you spoke about when you were talking Cave Dave, where, or is that the one you're working on now? Yeah, no, that was Cave Dave was like the working title for it. I think uh, it's going to be called Legends of the North Cascades. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, but it started as Cave Dave. That's the one I just turned in, and I'm super, super excited about it. You know, um, part of it takes place in 13,000 B.C., and uh, part of it takes place in modern in the modern era. And the, the, two, the two stories kind of work as a call and response. Well, so Lawn Boy takes place on, like I said, the Suquamish Reservation, but the uh, the protagonist, Mike Munoz, is not a native. He just happens to live on an Indian reservation because they're, they're not particularly wealthy. Um, but boy, I just feel like, you know, we always talk about zeitgeist and synchronicity and stuff, but as far as... You know, just encapsulating our moment with, uh, you know, class distinctions and the idea of race and, in, you know, wealth inequality, this this book was great, um, you know, really timely. Which is great because I wrote it like four years before, you know what I mean? I'm always so far ahead, but I, I always thought, you know, class has been with me for, I mean, decades. I always thought I'd write a big class narrative, but I thought I'd take more of a west of here tact with it. I thought it would be a big multi-generational, uh, you know, epic across time and space. But then I realized, you know, I just, all I needed was this one irreverent working class voice. I mean, I want to be, I want to be topical. I want to be current, but I don't, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be so topical that, you know, it's like a, trying to be topical thing, you know? So I just want, I want to sublimate the themes in my characters. And so I found the character of Mike and just sort of ran with it and everything I'd always wanted to sort of, you know, talk about it. when we talk about class in America, just sort of like fit right into Mike's life without having to make it like, you know, esoteric in any way. I think it's just a really readable, uh, you know, kind of fun book. Yeah, no, and the, so the the interesting thing that I find with all your writing is that I never, you can't predict it. I always feel like I kind of just have to surrender to it and let it take me where it's going to go because I can, I just, I'm always like, where is this going? <laughs> Which is really, uh, you know, just kind of a fun experience as, as a reader. I appreciate that. I think about the reader all the time. I mean, the reader's like, I do, you know, I, I'm not thinking about my audience, you know, I'm not like a demographic. I'm just thinking about the reader at the other end, the end user, which is just kind of like trying to write a book I want to read, you know. So it's like a dance, you know, where the reader does everything I'm doing backwards and heels. And, and you know, I know when I watch TV or, or read books so often, you know, I'm just, I'm just been so steeped in the three-act structure and Aristotelian dramatics my whole life. It's like I know what's going to happen most of the time, you know. 
I can watch a TV series and, you know, halfway through the second episode, I have a pretty good idea what the third act's going to look like. And I think anybody who reads a lot has a little bit of that going on. Mm -hmm. So it's something I'm very aware of trying to um, avoid, you know, and there's many ways to do that, you know, misdirect and, you know, little red herrings here and there, but I, I, I do want it to be surprising. So like one thing that you definitely do is, and I, I guess I haven't thought about this before necessarily, but a lot of times uh, the protagonists that we read about are middle class to, you know, upper middle class, or even like someone like Holden Caulfield, which is like, you know, private school kids. And so it's, it's you know, Wes Anderson films. Like these are, it's it's really interesting that the stories that we're kind of engrossed in are not necessarily everyday folks, but you're definitely telling the stories of everyday folks. And Yeah, right. That's most of us, right? Yeah. But with that, there's also kind of like the baggage of the small town where sometimes, you know, small towns are a mix of political ideologies and they're not super progressive, but you're, you're bringing like really challenging, you know, there's an interesting twist in your book, but you bring, you know, uh, Mike's friend is definitely kind of a traditional small town guy with all the, you know, the baggage therein. Yeah, it's, well, you know, first of all, I think it's interesting that people, and I get it, and I like it, like when the New York Times called Mike Munoz a Holden Caulfield for the new millennium, I get it. Of course, you're going to take that comparison. You're like, yeah, that's great, because Holden Caulfield, like this, you know, iconic uh, narrator that talks to you like a friend. And so I got what they meant by that. But like to me, it's just the antithesis of what Mike is, because, you know, what is Holden Caulfield without his safety net of wealth? You know, I mean, he's the ultimate entitled kid. He's walking around, sort of moping around, getting kicked out of these private schools, but he's always got a place to land. He's, Mike is the antithesis of that. Mike is like less than a paycheck away from homelessness at all times. He's got real problems. Um, so it's interesting to me that that it draws these um, these Holden Caulfield comparisons. And I, I realize it's just the voice, that sort of intimate first person talk to you like a friend voice. But like to me, I, I kind of rail against it because it's just it's the opposite of the truth. And 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 as far as the small town thing is like I think you know we live in this time of urban and, and rural uh, divide more than ever. Right. You know? Yeah. And I just don't think urban people really understand fully um, rural life. I don't think they see how, um, like I'm definitely a lefty on the political spectrum, but like I can sympathize uh, uh, to a certain point with these, these small town people that are, uh, feel like they've been abandoned by the left, you know, because of NAFTA and trade agreements and all these jobs going overseas. And there's a lot of stuff people don't understand. They just want to characterize them as trash or rednecks or, or, uh, or, or, you know, ignorant. And, and they just don't understand the simplest things. Like they think that, you know, just the way they, they view Christianity uh, in small towns. Um, they don't understand that like, you know, the church in a small town is the community center. It's not that everyone's super religious and, you know, can 
can can quote psalms off the top of their head. But like if you're struggling with alcohol abuse, chances are, or something like that, or domestic abuse, or any any problem you have, there's probably going to be a meeting in your church basement about that. If you're reaching out for help, it's going to somehow involve the church. It's just such a, a, a vital part of the fabric of the community. That's why churches are so big in rural places. And I, I don't think it's something to be confused with the doctrine of Christianity so much. It's just a it's 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 a social you know structure. The other institution that you present also, which is really interesting, is the idea of the Walmart, where, and it's just with all its inherent contradictions, where Mike can utilize what little money he has and get a lot of stuff, but at the same time, that institution is extracting value from the very community that it's serving. And I wish everyone were as enlightened as Mike. Uh, Mike's friend, I didn't even remember his name. Andrew. <laughs> Andrew. I, I wish everybody were as enlightened to that uh, ideal as possible. But the fact is, you know, people think with their wallets and they can get a lot of cheap crap at Walmart, you know, and they don't have a lot of money. Um, but, you know, it also breaks, you know, it also doesn't really pay to buy crap. You know, I bought two, I bought, you know, I bet that like for, components say you know like stereo components and things like that about like three three dvd players in the past i don't know two years they just don't last it's just junk whereas if i'd have paid if i'd have paid three times the money and just bought something good it would be fine or like i just buy vintage stuff now everything was just made so much better it's interesting though because though uh so andrew is kind of railing against he seems more privileged than mike though so like he has the luxury of being able to kind of you know and maybe it's just he has better credit um but you know he's got his whole host of problems too but you know there's there's something more immediate that mike has to deal with on the day in day out and that's like just basic transportation you know, truck dies. I've got to push my mower back home in the rain. Yeah, I I think I don't know if he's more entitled. I think he's just a little more enlightened because you know Andrew grew up in uh, he grew up in kind of a, a dead mill town as well, and you know uh, he's been sort of disowned by his parents and uh, got a job as a library sub assistant, but basically comes from a working class family. So I just think he's a little more enlightened, less than entitled. I think he's just learned how to lift himself up and. Um, you know, uh, you know, he's been fortunate to to escape the, the pitfalls of poverty to some extent, I guess, by empowering himself. Yeah. And so the nice thing is that there are like in his character, there are contradictions where he's got all these lists on his wall and he wants to be good. But at the same time, like so this is what's interesting from like a an ideological standpoint where especially younger people. It's it's black or white, you know. They're you're good or you're bad, but in reality, you know, there's just gray. You're just trying to get a little better, and so you know the fact that he's eating hot dogs, but also railing against you know whatever meat packing plants or whatever, you know. So there is this nice kind of gray quality to you know everything that you discuss in the work. Yeah. And I think the key is that Andrew identifies that. You know, he's the one that calls himself out. He's like, who am I kidding, you know? Who, who, who am I that, you know, I'm wearing leather shoes and here I am, you know, 
decrying animal cruelty. I think I think that's an important distinction. Is just to, to to just look. We're all hypocrites on some level. Every day we all do hypocritical stuff. But just to be able to identify that, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a that way a person can maintain a modicum of humility, you know, because there's a lot of if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of holier than thou going around, you know, a lot of sanctimony. I mean, we live in a terrible era of of, of uh, this sort of sanctimony where people, uh, you know, it's like I said, these people railing on on, on people that live in rural areas and just. You know, just just characterizing them as, as as trash and ignorant, and and they don't really understand anything about them, and and yet they're you know they're living in their wealthy enclaves, uh, you know, you know uh, virtue signaling, and they have great, they, their their ideals look great on paper, but you know these people, these same people are just like totally leveraged on wall street. You know what I mean? They're making their money off of GE and war and, and, you know, medical debt and all the, you know what I mean? But they don't, they don't acknowledge that. You know what I mean? They don't acknowledge their own hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I think a book that came out about the same time as yours. The, the winners take all is, uh, I, I can't say his name, Anon Girdadas or something, but it, you know, it's, it's, a deep look at at the the like the hypocrisy of you know where the billionaires are going to save the people that the you know of the problems that they created you know the people <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to help you after i've i've ruined your life kind of you know yeah I, and the idea that anybody is still buying this idea of wealth trickling down is just it's a joke i mean They've proven over and over again that that uh, you know if you consolidate wealth, you know the the, the wealthiest one percent is going to only put like eight percent of their money back in the economy. They're not going to pay a lot of taxes. They're going to hide their money offshore. They're going to launder it. They're going to do everything they can not to put ninety-two percent of it back in the economy. Whereas if all that income were in the hands of the working people. 110% of it would go back into the economy. You know what I mean? More than 100% because the average working person will get themselves 10, 10% in debt as well. So, I mean, that's a 102% difference right there in income velocity. And yet the world still, and like, you know, these billionaires uh, saying they're going to run for president, is, uh, it's just, I don't know, dude. <laughs> it's really depressing. <laughs> Well, you do have, yeah, you have this great scene and, and it's one of those transcendent moments that most people experience where, so you have all your characters at a campfire, you know, and basically everything drops away, but the moment and Mike is, you know, realizing how good life really is, you know, all things considered. And he's just, but it, it, it boils it down to you know, his human network and the connections he has with the people around him. Yeah, it's amazing what could happen when you get your face out of your phone, right? Just be grateful for what's around you. I I, I like that, that that moment is transcendent, and that should just be like any moment of your life, you know? I probably have, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 moments like that daily with my kids or just where I live. I just live in such a beautiful place, and... I don't know. I, I feel like people aren't as stoic as they used to be. We like to complain. We like to be victimized. We like to, you know, I don't know. 
things really aren't that different. The problems we have today, you know, I, I'm living in the 1850s right now for part of this book. And God, you know, I mean, the more I read it, just kind of like Mike's saying when he's reading Frank Norris and, 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 uh, and Lawn Boy, it's like, this could have been written today. These are not new problems. This is the same. In fact, the robber barons then were even more brazen. Now, now they have to be so insidious with things like, you know, uh, student loan debt and medical debt and things like that. Back in 1850, they just enslaved people, you know, I mean, period. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about, you know, the antebellum South here. I'm talking about, you know, Native Americans, Mexicans, like, you know, I mean, you read about gold rush era, California, and just the, 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 the wealthy, this, this stuff goes back, I think, all the way to the, you know, the pharaohs. I mean, there's, there's always been a, a type of wealthy people victimizing everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I, I spoke about, like, the transcendent moment of the campfire, but then, you know, you, there's the the home dental scene, you know, like, that's that's where reality really impinges, like, <laughs> your materiality, I guess, really asserts itself. You know, my editor wanted me to cut that scene. I'm like, no way. It was just too uncomfortable for too many people. And I'm like, there's no way I'm cutting it. That's reality, man. Well, that's what's so devastating is that you can you can think of it as satire, you know, and with like I could see this in a movie played uh, from a comedic angle, you know, and it would be kind of. But, you know, the reality and the, the you know, the truth of that scene is is like brutal where he doesn't have enough money for dental care. He just has to do what the moment requires. Yeah, and when I love it because later when, when Mike is uh, at the bar with uh, Tina, Tina smiles and he goes, been there, bro. You know what I mean? Because he, he can see that like he's got a missing bicuspid and you know, it's like been there. Like he's done it himself. These, these are the there's problems that people deal with that... that, that a lot, of, a lot of this country doesn't understand. They, 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 don't, they don't, you know. I mean, I know they say most people are one, one paycheck from poverty, but I mean, there's people that just like every paycheck are dealing with going to the money tree or payday loans and you know, surrendering 29 percent or 19 percent of their paycheck every time. It just, it just, it's just a hole you can't deal out of. And capitalism is such a joke that way because it's like it requires capital. If you don't have any capital, there is no opportunity. It's it's the definition of an up-level playing field. I mean, if you have money, I mean, I know a guy. I'm not going to mention names. Last time I did your show, I called my brother a deadbeat, and he, he heard it. I don't know how he's in Oregon. And I had to apologize profusely for it and stuff like that, although it was true. Um, and he's continued to prove as much. But uh, So I won't mention names. I know a guy, just kind of an entitled rich kid I went to school with, and, you know, I'm like, what does that guy do? He was all into drugs and stuff like that. He's just, but you know, he's driving around a sports car. And it turns out, you know, he just, he's a, he's a, he was a stockbroker, but all he had was just this one account of people. They're just like billionaires or something. And they just had all their money in this one sort of safe bond. They never moved anything. They never traded. They never did anything. They just collected on these bonds and it turned out the guy made like $180,000 a year just rolling out of bed. Like he never had to do anything. I mean, maybe once every quarter he had to file two pieces of paper or something, you know. But I mean, he wasn't trading for anybody. He was just getting a commission for handling these finances. And so there you go. 
this guy makes $180,000 without getting out of bed. Why? Because there's capital behind. If you got, if you, you know, if you don't, if you don't even know how you're going to make rent that month, there's just no opportunities for you here. I still deal with it, dude. I mean, I'm a best-selling novelist. I have great years. I have a wonderful life. I bought my dream house. I have this, but there's still this period every couple of years where it's like, holy cow, I have to max all my credit cards out just because it takes so long to get paid and so long to write a book and like, you know, money moves slowly that like I still deal with the sort of reality of scrambling to to keep the lights on for myself. But But, you know, luckily, fortunately for me at this point, there's kind of always this light at the end of the tunnel, but boy, sometimes I just don't know how I'm going to make it there. So, you know, it, it never really goes away for somebody like me. And maybe that's just because I'm, who doesn't know how to manage his money that well, but I don't know. Well, so for quite a few years, I've been thinking deeply about like the ills of our, our time, you know, so for a while it was more of the, so the the climate stuff, it's like, well, so how can one live that's not, you know, harmful to the climate? Like, but so it really boils down to just, you know, everything, like how, how we eat, how we live, you know, how we relate to one another. Um, the so, answer's pretty simple, though. I mean, you know, I mean, it seems so complicated, but the, the, it's still all about wealth consolidation, mechanized farming, petrol chemicals. I mean, dude, uh, you know, 80 years ago, the Japanese invented a train uh, that was electric, that the only the, the only exhaust was steam. I mean, the, the technology has been in place for decades to make these moves. I, I, like, it's all still because of the consolidation of wealth and people trying to keep systems, yeah, trying to, you know, keep systems alive so that they don't have to, uh, you know, um, you, you see it a little bit like the cigarette companies and how kind of turning towards uh, legalized marijuana or something like that, where a corporation is forced to uh, forced to alter itself. I think that all you have to really do to try to save the planet is just not spend your money more than two degrees from somebody you know. So when you start to think about that, I mean, it's not like you have to know a farmer. You have to know somebody who knows a farmer that can source your materials. You can do this with almost any service and product except for two, petroleum and technology. They're unsustainable. You can't, you, you know, there was a guy that tried to build a cell phone, tried to make a competing cell phone, and he realized you can't do it without you need little Chinese slave children picking through uranium fields. You can't do it without slave labor because the, the phones we pay $800 for should actually cost like $8,000. You know what I mean? They get us on the services and stuff, but it's dependent upon slave labor. So there's technology and there's the, the, those are the two things that are going to ruin us because anything else we could source from just, you know, one or two degrees of, uh, you know, it's, it's about getting away from the global and back to the regional economy, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, know. Well, I mean, if you really start following it down the line, it makes perfect sense. The only way you're going to ever be corporations is to not give them your money. Well, so the, there was an interesting illustration of how, like, the capitalistic beast kind of works, where Mike was, he was making 20 bucks an hour, which was, you know, great. He was happy. And then all of a sudden, he got this offer to make 23 bucks. And then, you know, with some undercutting, all of a sudden, he, you know, he, 
he went into a negotiation where he's supposed to make 15 and then he's down to 14 because he opened his mouth. You know, it's like, well, and he opened his mouth because he had a conscience. He's like, eh, I really don't know if I should leave my old boss. He's been good to me. And then it turns out his old boss is the one that conspired with the other guys to, to lower his wage. You know what to, I mean? It was their just own like, it was like a benefit, right? Because they're thinking, yeah, it was about... a Ponzi scheme, and Mike and what got Mike caught up, and it was his own conscience, something the other two people involved had none of. That's the irony of it. You know, it's always going to be the good person with the conscience that's going to get, you know, squashed in this deal. Well, the other thing I think about with landscapers too is so you know, here's this this hard work. But for the most part, they're the only ones that are enjoying those beautiful landscapes. You know, they're more like a, a symbol of your, your wealth. But like to be out in that space and really enjoying, you know, having those transcendent, like real earth type moments, you know, it, it's just the gardeners who are in the space for the most part. Yeah, and I can tell you from experience, because all of my landscaping experience is based on my own. Although I wasn't 23, I was like 35. Um, it, it doesn't feel that way when you're working on some rich person's garden. I mean, I don't stop to admire the beauty. I, it really just feels like a job. Then once I had my own place with all this acreage and I, I was doing my own, then I really felt the connection to it, which speaks to your point. I mean, I don't, when you do it, when you, when you, when you cultivate your own stuff, it always feels a little bit. But we're dealing with a species of people. They're almost like a different species. They don't, you know, rich people are really pretty fucking useless, dude. Oops, did I swear? Can I not swear? You can swear. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, they're pretty useless, dude. All you got to do is hang around Telluride, Colorado or something for a weekend just to see how useless most wealthy people are. They can't do anything for themselves. They're so used to being served. They can't change a tire. They can't prune a rose. They can't, I mean... So no wonder they're unfulfilled. No wonder they think they have to have this more, more, more and fill this hole up. It's because they don't, they can't, they can't execute the simplest of rewarding tasks that the rest of us just take for granted. It's like cultivating your life, cultivating your own survival in an in the environment, you know? All right. Well, we're running out of time, but you know, what are you, what are you talking about at Tree Fort this year and uh, what can we look forward to? Well, I'm doing a, a, me and Jamie Ford are kind of doing a sort of a, a, I guess it's a workshop. It's just going to be kind of Jamie and I rapping about the process of writing novels. We've both run a, you know, we've written a ton of them. So uh, we're, we're just going to, uh, we're just going to talk about processes, different things that have worked for us and not worked for us, uh, how the process is always different. We'll talk about everything from research to, you know, narrative architecture to, to outlining, to publishing, just kind of whatever comes up. And I think that's happened at the OE. Did I say it right? The OE? I think it's Oahe. Oahe? Yeah, that's happened there on the first floor of the cafe, I think, on um, Saturday. And then uh, I think Friday or Thursday, I don't remember which, maybe it's Thursday, uh, we're doing a live podcast. Uh, uh, I'm doing a live podcast broadcast where it's uh it's called a literary slugfest and i think we're going to just find a couple of uh like we're going to find some stuff to argue about me and larry rosen and bridget quinn are going to find some sort of uh divisive issues like i'm thinking like faulkner because i love to take faulkner down a notch and that's you know anthema to the literate community he's like a sacred cow but i love to take him down so i'll probably take the unpopular thing of that 
I'll probably take a, another one I was thinking about doing is like the great American novel, like the great Gatsby versus what makes Sammy run. Again, I'll probably take the unpopular what makes Sammy run. That's kind of like the waspy version of the great American version of the great American novel, stuff like that. So we're going to just, uh, and that'll be a live, uh, you know, for an audience kind of thing. And then I'm just going to be down at 10th Street holding court. So if anybody wants to come in and bring a book and get it signed or just have a beer or say hi, you'll know where to find me. Any, did you, have you looked at the, the lineup at all? Anything you're excited about? I looked at the tentative lineup. I have not looked at it partially. Just I couldn't get it to work on my phone because I'm such a Luddite. Um, I need to go see the, I saw Bill Spills playing again. That's always fun. That's always fun. And then the the new book, you say 800 pages. How do you, I mean. The one I'm working on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where are you headed? I know it's about that because I've already got the architecture for it. It's like nine cycles, of ten characters. Wow. I've got five, five, five narrative lines in, in the 1850s and five modern narrative lines. Great. And I know roughly how long each cycle is going to be. So I don't know, way down, somewhere between seven and 900 pages. It's a beast. But I think it'll read fast. Cool. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Well, thanks for having me, buddy. I look forward to seeing you at Treeport. You bet. You've been listening to Jonathan Evanson on 42 Minutes, a production of Sickbook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his website at jonathanevanson.net for more information about the Syncbook. Our guest, check out past shows. Just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and furthermore, it's my opinion that those who claim their accomplishments all to themselves, those who are the heroes of their own stories, are liars. 